Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Tea Break Time Travel. I'm your host Matilda Siebrecht and today I am savouring a black vanilla tea. Very, very simple. And joining me on my tea break today is fellow archaeologist Pierre Huber. And what are you drinking today? You're also on tea, the Dutch are famous tea drinkers, so I imagine it's tea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm actually drinking uh, Yorkshire tea, black tea as well. Yeah, oh, Even better, you're getting into the full spirit of things. <laughs> yeah, I visited Yorkshire this summer and I um, brought home some souvenirs, including uh, a big uh, carton of uh, black tea. <laughs> <laughs> I found it really funny, actually, because to me, the British were always like the quintessential tea drinkers and it was a really big thing that like tea, the British are tea drinkers and that's what it is. But then actually when I moved to the Netherlands, apparently the Dutch are the largest consumers of tea in the world, which I really, Yeah. Which oh, you do. I, I mean, you have a lot of teas. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But we also drink a lot of coffee. That's true. So uh, up there in... Uh, <laughs> hot beverages in general. Yeah, yeah. Hot beverages in general, maybe. <laughs> okay, so we've established we're both both tea drinkers. That's good. Um, and uh, <laughs> indeed, the Dutch just enjoy drinking hot beverages in general. But we are not here to talk about tea, even though I think that that would make a fantastic podcast episode. We are here to talk about traveling back in time or archaeology more specifically. And... I always find people always ask, how do I get into archaeology? How does one become an archaeologist? And every single person I've had on so far has a different story. So to keep in, in line with that, what is your story? How did you get introduced to the world of archaeology? <laughs> yeah, so actually, as a child, I was already doing stuff like burying roadkill and digging up the bones <laughs> really <laughs> okay so i wasn't yeah, expecting yeah, that so <laughs> i was expecting, like i was already interested in like roman history and things <laughs> okay yeah that's yeah very specific <laughs> a very specific maybe a little bit dark but um no I it mean, was is that archaeology or is that just like <laughs> <laughs> well the digging part was was already something that i was interested in uh, apparently okay, okay. and i think i was mostly inspired by things like Jurassic Park, which of course it's not archaeology. Let me stress that uh, <laughs> here yeah. again. You Disclaimer, know, like that's paleontology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so already had an interest in history for a long time as a child, and I remember visiting the Harz in Germany <gasps> uh, with my parents. We went fossil hunting. We visited the Neanderthal. Uh-huh. So and also the Neanderthal uh, museum, of course. So that I think that was an important spark for me, mm-hmm. developing my interest. And then when I went on to, to, to choose my studies in university, I didn't really know very clearly what I wanted to do, but I looked around and archaeology was one of the options in Groningen <laughs> and it just really clicked. It was combining a lot of my interests, like uh, I was interested in history, sociology, these kind of things, but also in, you know, like doing practical stuff, 
excavating, mm. working with material that that really appealed to me. So that's why I chose it, and I uh, never looked back. That's true. Actually, archaeology is that fantastic combination of like it has all of the theory, and you can yeah. you can just do theoretical stuff if you want to, but then it's also really practically focused as well. Yeah, exactly. And I I, I remember going to these. Uh, different orientation days at university when I was still in high school. Yeah, a lot of the things that I was interested in just involves only reading, a lot of reading. <laughs> and archaeology <laughs> does involve a lot of reading, but yeah, just combining that with some practical stuff really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, has your thoughts of what archaeology is changed a lot since that initial time when you first were interested in it? Yeah, definitely. It's a difficult question, actually. I really have to go back to when I was 18, which is 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows. No one knows. <laughs> I don't really remember uh, what I thought archaeology was at the time. I think I had I had a quite um, a romantic idea about it, you know, especially about commercial archaeology. I thought mm. it would be very adventurous, <laughs> but yeah. reality, it can be quite... How do you say it? Don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's adventurous. We'll stick with that. <laughs> okay. I think for, well, it that was similar out. for me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It was similar for me a little bit because I think I actually was reluctant to get into archaeology because to me it was very like classics focused and very kind of, I had that view of it, you know, the sort of, oh, you have to know the Bible back to front and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. That was sort of what I thought of as archaeology. But actually, since I've realized that it's, yeah, it's it's more about a way of thinking and a way of interpreting the world. And yeah, I, it's a lot better than I initially thought it was, which is uh, nice. Yeah, I, re I remember early on in my studies, or even when I started out, I already was interested mostly in prehistory. Mm. Yeah, also because you can really explore things that, that are not written down yet anywhere, you know, like it's you you deal with stuff that's completely new to anyone, mm. I suppose, you know? Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm biasing people's perception of archaeology through this podcast because I just realized that I think all of my guests have pretty much, we've talked about prehistoric <laughs> objects, which there are other, <laughs> lots of other very interesting things. I need to make sure to get some some medievalists and uh, things on. on yeah, yeah. And I think particularly later periods are very interesting for archaeology because you can combine you know, like stuff from the written source material mm. with findings from the field. And that, yeah, that can be very interesting, complementary or contrasting. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And the, I mean, because yes, you have this written sources and I always say, oh, I love prehistory because we don't have the written sources. So, you know, it's sort of more imaginative, but actually the written sources are also very biased, right? Because they were written yeah. by people who had an opinion. So it's another form of interpreting objects i suppose in a way as well so uh yeah yeah Still, i i love prehistory but obviously historic periods very interesting <laughs> as well um, <laughs> which leads nicely actually into my next question which is if you could travel back in time as the podcast series suggests is the theme of this uh, podcast where would you go and why yeah i think this is a very difficult question <laughs> because every time period probably has its struggles right but I, th I think just to satisfy my curiosity, I think I would, I would like to go to the late Mesolithic, mm -hmm. to the early Neolithic transition in the Netherlands to see how, 
hunter-gatherers and early farmers interacted in this region. Hmm. Yeah. And also because I think this period in the Netherlands or in Northwest Europe in general was a period in which, you know, like natural resources were very abundant. And, you know, I think I think if you would be able to join a group at that in that time, you would live comfortably, Mm. hopefully. (laughs) Do you think that you would you would survive well if you were put into like Mesolithic or Neolithic life? Uh, not on my own. No, <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely need to join a group of hunter gatherers or early farmers and uh, make myself useful somehow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's always my thought. I'm like, I'd love to think that I could just go back and then you know slide seamlessly into society, but I'd probably be that you know person that they all have to look after and would eventually just be kind of left behind somewhere <laughs> because they can't be bothered anymore. Yeah, so. I think your your skill levels would be like that of a child at that yeah. time you know like you you really have to get a tutor to to learn yeah. everything <laughs> all of the practical skills that you don't know you don't know any of the plant names and stuff you know <laughs> yeah exactly well so then maybe later periods would be better for me actually because I could just be you know a high-born lady and not do anything or whatever and uh, just kind of uh, live, the, live the easy <laughs> life but anyway um, which just shows how much I know about medieval life because who knows if that was actually the case but uh <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me on my tea break today. And before we focus on today's object, let's first journey back, of course, around 7,000 years this time. The exact date is not very important because the object that we're looking for on this particular journey was around for a very, very long time. And we are now in a very rocky landscape, cliffs and peaks sweeping up to meet the dusk-streaked sky and down into the darkening valley below. The air is crisp and dry, but it's also filled with the scent of wood smoke. We turn and see a small group of people, all of them gathered around a small fire. They're trying to make the most of these final hours of fading sunlight to finish off a couple of tasks. One is examining a piece of flint, turning it slowly in one hand and holding a large, slightly rounded pebble in the other. Fragments of flint are mixed in with the grass and stone around their feet. After a minute of examination, the figure grunts and settles the flint down against their thigh, raising the pebble in the other hand. The hand moves slowly up and down, gauging the distance and force required before striking suddenly downwards. There's a loud and beautifully pitched crack and a perfect segment of flint breaks off. The hits continue, interspersed with many examinations, turning, grunting, until what's left is a relatively small, thin piece of flint with a central ridge tapering down into sharp edges. By this time, the light is fading into dusk and the figure decides to give up for the day, storing their creation carefully in a small leather pouch on their belt. Now, I of course, may have got all of this completely wrong in terms of how you create these objects. But today we are looking at flint blade technology. And we'll get into the details soon. But as always, I had to have a look at the most asked questions on the internet, courtesy of Google search uh, autofill. There were actually a surprisingly small amount of questions about flint blades. I guess they're not something that people look up a lot. But uh, I came up with a couple. (laughs) First one was, what were flint blades used for? Nice and simple question. Obviously, a very easy answer, right, Pierre? Yeah, actually, I'm not <laughs> surprised that it's not a very popular uh, search term, <laughs> but because um, this is quite niche. But yeah, flint blades were obviously used for their cutting edge, right? Uh, you already mm. illustrated very nicely that flint blade will taper down into like a sharp edge. Yeah, you could use a flint blade for cutting anything, cutting plant materials, butchering animals. And you don't necessarily need a blade for that. You could use any flake. 
but preparing flint during the napping process so that you can make blades will allow you to get like a standardized form mm. for all of your tool production as well. So they were often used as blanks to make arrowheads out of them, barbs, or, uh, you know, like uh, tools like scrapers or burins, which were used to work hide or bone or antler. Okay. So they were almost like a starting piece to potentially be transformed into something else. Yeah, I think in Flint's terminology, we usually talk about blades as just a specific type of flake, which is a flake that is roughly twice as long as it is wide. And we also imply with using the word blade that some type of systematic way of producing them was used. Mm. So you can sort of accidentally create a blade while napping flakes. But, you know, we tend to think of a blade production as a systematic thing, you know, like uh, you uh, prepare a core, you know, a piece of flint into a core, and then you nap it in a certain way so that you can create a series of blades, which you can then use as knives or as blanks for other tools. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So they really were just a very diverse and kind of multi-faceted, haha, excuse the pun, uh, <laughs> tool yeah. in that respect. Okay, that's very interesting. And <laughs> I imagine then because they could be used for so many things, the next question is, uh, are flint blades strong? Which I imagine the answer is yes, or are they <laughs> not considered the strongest of tools? Uh, yeah, they're very strong. They're actually, the correct term is that they're very hard. Okay. So you have this uh, scale of hardness called the Mohs scale. Mm -hmm. And that goes from one to 10, in which 10 is, you know, like very hard materials such as diamond. Uh And flint is about as hard as a steel nail, about seven on the six or seven on the the scale of Mohs. Mm -hmm. But it is very brittle. So you can easily snap a flint blade or it can break when you use it. Yeah, to work antler, for example, if you put pressure on it, it can it can splinter. Mm, but it okay. is very hard. Yeah. And is it the kind of object that you, because it's sort of a very specific shape, is it the kind of object that you also see it being like retouched a lot and kind of adapted to, to still be a blade, but just a different kind of blade? Or is it the kind of object that once the edge has chipped off or once it's broken in a particular way, it can't be used for anything anymore? So exactly. When... You use a blade to create different tools. You are retouching it, basically, into the shape that is desired. So, for example, Mm. you'll blunt one edge to make a scraper out of it. But once it's been bruised, you can't really use it that well for cutting anymore. You know, it's the most sharp. If you want to use a blade for for cutting, it's the most sharp just after it was napped. And if you've been using it for a while and it's been bruised and it's been sort of blunted it's no use to kind of try to sharpen it again or something you'll just use a different flake or blade to to cut with okay which is nice though that if you have your you know lovely blade that you've spent time creating and then you accidentally break one edge or something you can just make it into something else and then it's still useful which is uh i don't know nice nice recycling i guess (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the final question, which I guess we've already touched on a little bit, but maybe you could go into a tiny bit more detail, is how do you make a flint blade? So you've mentioned the terms napping, flint napping. 
I assume that probably most of the people listening do understand what that is, but imagine for a second that I am a complete archaeological novice. I have no idea about flint. Could you maybe provide a very kind of simple overview of how you might create a flint blade? Yeah, so um, you need two elements. You need a piece of flint, obviously, and you need some kind of hammer, which can be a pebble, so a, a hammer stone, or uh, maybe an antler hammer. And what happens if you just strike a piece of flint with a hammer, you will create a flake, which is just a broad piece of flint with a sharp edge, which is fine. But if you want to create uh, blades, you will need to do a lot more preparation. And the main things you need to prepare is a platform that will have an acute edge. So you need something like 70 degree edge with the rest of the core. And then you will have to prepare some kind of ridge on the uh, working face of the uh, piece of flint. Because if you strike a piece of flint, the energy of the strike will sort of travel through the material because the material is very homogeneous and it has the same properties in every direction. So basically every product from a strike to a piece of flint will sort of be, it will sort of follow the fracture dynamics, if you understand what I mean. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So like it's, it will create a conchoidal fracture and then it will, you know, like that will split off. Mm-hmm. So you need to prepare a ridge, which is called a crest. If you want to create a very long conchoidal fracture along mm-hmm. this uh, this piece of flint. And if you've managed to get the first bit off, the first blade off, which will be a crested blade, then you will have two ridges uh, from the negative of that blade. And then you mm-hmm. can use those ridges as starting points to nap off your second and third blade. And then you'll have more ridges to work from. So that's kind of the process for blade production. And it, and it involves a lot of corrections you know so you have to sort of keep that platform at the right angle especially if you've been uh, napping for a while you'll sort of damage the, the edge of the platform so you need to do a lot of work in between which I admit is something that I just could never get the hang of while napping I'm, I think it's just because I'm so impatient and it would be like but I don't like I you know you have to, like you say you have to do 10 steps before you can do <laughs> the first kind of <laughs> preparatory thing. And I was just like, no, but I want, I want to do it now. <laughs> I want it now. <laughs> uh, which is, well, well, I think we'll talk about that a little more later. So I won't yeah. go into too much detail now. But uh, yeah, so it basically, it's not, you mentioned before flakes sometimes being similar to flint blades or vice versa, or you can make a blade from a flake. But indeed, it's not just hitting it and hoping that something nice comes off. You have to prepare it a lot is what you're saying. So. Yeah, it requires a lot of insight into how fracture mechanics work and how how this particular piece of flint has to be prepared because you know like every piece of flint is different it will have like weird knobs or weird shapes and you have to nap off the right bits to create that uh, that preform hey archaeology podcast fans anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. 
They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Okay, well, thank you for that. So we know a little bit more about sort of basics of flint blades, but maybe you could tell us even more about this subject. I mean, it sounds like it's a subject that you could probably write volumes on, and I'm sure people have, um, but uh, <laughs> just, uh, you know, for this section, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about it. So flint blades have been around, I, I guess, quite a long time because they seem such a nice, versatile object, but when do they sort of first appear in the archaeological record? What's kind of the oldest date that we have for flint blades? Yeah, so in... I have to admit, I'm I'm mostly focused on uh, on your uh, Northwest Europe, but I did do a little bit of research uh, to prepare for this question, and I did see that actually the earliest evidence for flint blades seems to be in South Africa. It's around five hundred thousand years ago, wow. so that's very very early. Yeah, and this type of flint napping, this style of of technology was probably lost and rediscovered several times, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, in in Europe, it appears with the early modern humans, the Aurignacian culture, but it's also uh, seen on sites of the latest Neanderthals, mm-hmm. so the Mysterian culture. And that's around 40,000 years ago. Okay, but so, I mean, they've been around for nearly as long as stone tools then, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Okay. Well, not not the uh, it's probably not the earliest. Like the earliest stone tools were uh, flakes, and uh, they're not as old. Like blade technology is not as old as hand axe technology, for example. But it's it's quite old. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which is funny because I would imagine that hand. Don't worry, I'm not going to quiz you about hand axes now. But (laughs) please don't. (laughs) I'm just thinking about it because to me, a hand axe seems like a much more complicated object to make. So the fact that they were around before blades, but then I guess, yeah, it's just what you need and what survives as well, I suppose, in the ground. Yeah, but I think that's that's interesting. I don't know if it is more complicated. I think both are kind of difficult. I think the preparation stage for making flint blades kind of resembles making a hand axe, kind okay. of, right? You have to do this alternating flaking to create this ridge that you can uh, uh, start the first blade from. But I think the, the the point is really that these are, yeah, different styles of technology that you learn from your teachers, from your parents, from your kin. And mm-hmm. if your group just doesn't do blades, then you won't learn about blades. Right? Yeah, <laughs> which actually is interesting that you mentioned that. So, I mean, obviously, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how you would define a blade and that kind of thing. But Indeed, if they've if they're around for such a long time and they're in so many different parts of the world, can you identify almost like styles or kind of cultural development in blade technology or that kind of thing, or is it sort of homogenous in terms of the how you would define a blade kind of thing, or how they appear? Should we say? Uh, yeah. So I actually did. Th- this was kind of the topic of my master thesis research. Oh, so would you look I'll at get that? Into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very specifically on the late Paleolithic of the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so the differences you'll see in napping styles of napping blades is are quite subtle, but you can see differences. And I think the the assumption here is that since people learn things in like a social context, especially, you know, like practices like napping mm-hmm. will resemble the practices of of people that they are close to because at a certain time you'll have a certain community of practice which is just a fancy way of saying there was a certain way we did things (laughs) 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 right yeah you learn how to make a certain thing and you will do it that way because you learned it that way and you'll yeah you'll do it in the same way as your grandfather did or your grandmother did and you'll do it the same way as your you know like <laughs> your cousins over in the next village did it you know like <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah. kind of the the big assumption there and uh so in that way you could use napping style or just the whole production process as kind of a marker to study cultural change over time yeah. because in the period that I was interested in uh, during my master thesis, uh, which is the, uh, the late Paleolithic, as I mentioned, you have these styles developing in, for example, arrowheads, which we use to sort of divide the material culture that we find in Northwest mm-hmm. Europe. I will have to go into what, what these arrowheads look like, maybe. So uh, <laughs> all of these arrowheads were made on blades. Okay. And there were different ways in which they were made. So some of the groups were using the arrowheads as like a barb. So they would make kind of like a triangular edge. Mm -hmm. uh, And some of them were used in a, yeah, just as the point of the, of the arrow. And they were sort of tanged in a certain way so that you could shaft them into the arrow, arrow shaft. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think that styles like that in the way you create something like like an arrowhead is a bit more uh, subject to change and you can, uh-huh. can change it more because it's maybe seen as like a cultural marker, right? So you mm. can see like, oh, these, this group that comes in from a, abroad, let's say they use arrowheads this way, we can do that as well, or, oh, we want to be more like them, so mm. let's you know, like do it in the same way, you know, like these kind of things can, can happen, which is called. About to say, now we're getting into proper theoretical vocabulary. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So this is like, like lateral. um, Transmission? Yeah. Yeah. Lateral transmission. I'm trying to remember. I did this all the time. I (laughs) I should know this stuff. (laughs) Which is going to show people that are listening in. I mean, you can say things in a very nice, clear way, but sometimes if you want to make sure that the theories and the concepts that you're talking about are universally understood. You have to use these slightly complicated <laughs> terms such as lateral transmission. Uh, yeah, so which is just a, a fancy word of, you know, like uh, aping other people, right? Yeah. So, like, do, <laughs> doing the same thing as your neighbor. Our papers. <laughs> like, that would be yeah. so much better. <laughs> it would definitely cut down the word count, which would be great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay. And do you see like with the, because with the arrowheads, I guess it's more, you know, like you say, you would, you have all these different shapes and things, do flint blades though, because I mean, at least in my mind, I'm seeing them as all roughly the same kind of shape, but do you also see variation in that 
sort of uh, visual perception, typological kind of <laughs> view of it? Or is it more subtle than that? Yeah, I'll, I'll get into that. But but first, I'll have to sort of uh, do a bit of a preamble <laughs> okay. about like what I was trying to look at. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my goal for my thesis was to kind of place a particular cultural group in the Netherlands in the context of like the groups that we have in at the same time in the Netherlands and in Germany and more to the south uh, because this particular group looked very much the same as like the German Hamburgian mm-hmm. but it had when you say looked the same sorry what do you yeah, mean yeah so sorry yeah this is my own so, curiosity as well <laughs> so exactly in in the way you just asked like the the, the shape of the blades oh, right. you know, so like the way the yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool, so the, just the shape of the blades and the way they were napping blades so okay. similar to to the hamburgian culture okay that we have in germany and denmark and poland and also in the netherlands uh-huh. uh, but this group in the netherlands was making arrowheads in the way they did in England, uh, uh, very similar to uh, what was called the Creswellian culture, Mm -hmm. uh, which is now called the late Magdalenian. Again, good old vocabulary. uh. (laughs) Yeah, 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 there we go. (laughs) (laughs) This is getting very specific. (laughs) No, no, it's good. It's just funny because it is, I think, a perfect demonstration of why there are so many definitions and terminology in archaeology. It's just something that inevitably you have to come up with at some point. (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah, and and, and actually that terminology, it's part of what's interesting here because the reason why it's now called the British Late Magdalenian in Britain and no longer the Croswellian is because the sites in England at that time are so similar to the French material in terms of how they were doing you know, like the style of napping blades mm, okay. that they were saying like, okay, actually we, there They're is not, not enough, enough reason to separate yeah. these as two different cultures. Ah, okay. But the Dutch material doesn't have the same way of napping as the English okay. or, or... So it's or, not uh, called the Dutch Magdalenian. <laughs> no, but both the uh, Hamburgian and the British late Magdalenian have their origin in the French Magdalenian or in like the, the Magdalenian of central central europe so yeah so that's that's kind of what we're looking at at that time is two different migration routes into the north because these groups were sort of splitting up at the end of the ice age so the last ice age sort of warmed up a little bit towards the end so around Mm -hmm. fifteen thousand years ago it started to become a lot warmer and the tundras were expanding. So people that were up until then restricted to South Germany and uh, France could yeah. now move into the north. So they could move into like North Germany, into mm. Denmark. But first they moved into Britain uh, huh. to the west around 15,500 years ago. And about a thousand years later, they moved also from the east of Central Europe into like the Northeast, so into uh, North Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these two different groups, they sort of found each other, I think, <laughs> in the Netherlands. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> you again. <laughs> right. How was your so they... trip? Our one was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, th- I think 
that was kind of my my goal to 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 sort of understand this this group of sites that we have in the Netherlands that have these mm-hmm. British uh, style of making arrowheads and this sort of Eastern style of napping flints, right? Okay. Interesting. That's really fascinating and nice. It's a perfect example of how, yeah, changes in technology can show you not just development over time in one place, but indeed how people actually came into contact with each other. Because like you say, if people were learning from their grandfather and, you know, person A learns from their grandfather and person B learns from their grandfather, if those two then meet up and have a kid, who will person C, (laughs) you know, what what will their style look like? You know, it will be, I guess, a sort of mix or, or something. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, this was uh, quite difficult to, to do because it required a lot of statistics, uh, doing um, uh, all of these little measurements on like a, a sample of blades from each side. So I looked at uh, things that happen during the fracturing process, right? The way you hit a piece of flint, mm. it will create, you know, like different details on the uh on the platform and below the platform in the way okay so looking at kind of how each flint was made basically how each blade was made i mean yeah 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 Yeah, it's kind of an interplay of like preparation uh the hardness of the hammer and also like the the way it was swung and you know like (laughs) the force that was used this will Uh all have some kind of effect on the way the flint blade looks Oh, that's really cool, though, that you can see so much yeah. detail about that. Well, you can't sort of parse all of those details, mm. but it will all have sort of an influence on the conchoidal fracture. <laughs> the flake so, that comes off is yeah. the conchoidal fracture, right? Yes, good. <gasps> yeah, well, <laughs> as it sort of hits, it will create a bulb and a scar and maybe a lip at the mm-hmm. start of the... So these three things can sort of be scored and you can sort of do statistics on on the differences between assemblages in that way okay. and also i did a lot of refitting which is just taking all of the blades and and flakes and the cores from uh, a site and putting them on the table and just start puzzling nice because <laughs> basically all of the all of the stuff you can you find on a site it probably all came from a couple of chunks of flint right Uh, uh, if they were napping on that site they uh, should in theory all fit together if they didn't take a lot of stuff (laughs) away which they did so usually it doesn't all fit together Uh, yeah that's (laughs) a shame uh, yeah but this refitting it does allow you sort of to follow the thought process of the napper it allows you to see what kind of actions were done first and later and to see what kind of preparation they did so cool. that's kind of what I did to sort of characterize these different sites. Okay, very interesting. Which and I guess is also a nice way to see indeed how, like you were saying, all the different preparation and everything. I can This is reminding me, I can't remember who it is. Someone makes beautiful like little arrowhead displays, but they, they frame the arrowhead, but then they also include all of the flakes that are created through creating the arrowhead, like all of the tiny little, you know, uh, re, uh, not retouch, uh, What's the word when you're pressing with an antler bit on the end, uh, on the edge to make it nice? Yeah, and the sharp. pressure flakes. Yeah, pressure flakes. Um, like all of those bits that come off and everything. And it's so interesting because you have this relatively small little arrowhead and then just like a hundred <laughs> flakes around it, which yeah, came yeah. off during the whole manufacturing process, which I think is a really nice way indeed of kind of 
visualizing that idea that we were talking about earlier of the fact that these relatively simple looking objects actually need a hell of a lot of preparation to uh, to create. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I think I've seen that before, but I, I don't, Can't don't remember. remember. Oh, Ancient did Craft. It. That was it. Oh, Ancient okay. Craft. Ancient Craft. In, in yeah. Which are UK based. Uh, yeah, uh, right. I follow them on, uh, yeah. on Instagram. I <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what I was For the listener, this might be a little bit confusing because you're referring now to pressure flaked arrowheads, which were not true, which used is something in this different. period. Uh, they're made <laughs> out of flakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But these are just simply blades that are retouched in a certain shape. Um, yeah. Although, to, to yeah, which the you then also, yeah. I think in Leiden, they might, they did one, someone did an example, they had a big glass core, and then they made a bunch of blades out of it, and mm-hmm. then stuck them all back together to show the original core shape. Obviously, you had like, it wasn't perfectly together, because you had all these sort of smaller edges that had been removed during the, the sort of blade creation process but that was also really interesting to see this idea that you were talking about earlier of preparing the core and then yeah. from that as long as you hit the first one correctly you can just go do, 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 and uh, create a bunch of little ones which was that's nice. really cool yeah, yeah yeah because uh it's so translucent you could see uh, all the way yeah. through the through the uh, refit that would be really nice to see yeah yeah it's very cool it's in a display cabinet somewhere in Leiden university oh okay <laughs> yeah. yeah so if you're ever down not seeing it <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, okay. No, very cool. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So what was your result? I mean, did you see that there was indeed those same similarities? Uh, not similarities, the, the kind of evidence of the, what's it called? Lateral transmission <laughs> that uh, we had? Yeah, so I, I, I think it was quite difficult to argue either way uh, what happened because what I found basically is that the biggest difference was between the Magdalenian side that I looked at from the southern Netherlands and between the Hamburgian and Creswellian together. Okay. (laughs) And my theory for what's the biggest factor in the difference in napping style is just the availability of of raw material mm. so in the northern netherlands and in north germany as well all of the flint that's available comes from secondary p- deposits so it's flint that has been transported during the ice age okay by the ice sheet so uh-huh. the ice sheet sort of pushed all of this material from scandinavia into northwest europe including like uh, huge boulders that were later in the Neolithic used to make grave monuments, you know, like oh, the, oh. the Hunebedden, the Dolmen, mm. but also lots of flint. But because of this very slow transporting process, these flints were sort of banged around. And, they, right. you know, like they were also in permafrost, which was thawing and then freezing again, thawing again. So there's lots of little ice cracks in there. Okay. Uh, so it, all of the material that's available in the north is just a lot smaller than what you can get f- uh, in the south, where the flint is in its primary context, so in the, oh. in the uh, chalk layers. 
okay. uh, where you can just get a huge bit of flint out of there and you can prepare it any way you want. And you can make use of like uh, a very long piece of flint to make very long blades. And mm. that's what they were doing in the Magdalenian and also in, in the Magdalenian in Britain. Is they were using these very big ch- chunks of flint and they were working them from uh, two sides to make very long blades and they were pre- preparing for each blade. They were preparing sort of the platform in a very specific way. So it's sort of jutted out in a certain way. You could use that to sort of make sure that the force of the blow would just travel in a straight line down through the core. So you would mm. get very long, very straight blades. And that's what's what's very characteristic of the late Magdalenian. Uh, okay. But they were also using other strategies for smaller pieces of flint. And that didn't involve a lot of platform preparation at all. And that's what you see in North Germany, in the Hamburgian, and also mm. in the Creswellian in the Netherlands. So I think yes. that, yeah, just, just raw material is just the biggest uh, yeah, because it's funny, you sort of think about it, I'm, I was just trying to think, and it's like, oh, if you have like a, a plentiful supply of good quality flint, you know, from the kind of raw deposit, the primary deposits rather than stuff that's already been banged around a lot, then maybe you'd be kind of less, care- you know, you wouldn't worry as much because it's like, oh, but it's it's bound to be fine if I hit it in this way because it doesn't have these fractures and everything. But then at the same time, you have this really nice big bit of flint, you don't want to mess it up and, you know, not yeah. do it correctly. So, uh, yeah, I guess it, both both sides would have an argument of how much careful preparation you would want to do for, for each thing. Yeah, yeah. so the, the whole enigma of the Dutch Croswellian is unsolved still, and it probably will be very difficult to solve it because it's already been discussed for you know, like 70 years or something longer. So, (laughs) well, um, if anyone listening, you know, (laughs) feels inspired to start their own project on this subject, go ahead. It's uh, lots of things. But I I did find some, you know, like the way of flint napping and some sites that are later Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the Hamburgian, for example, you've got some sites where they have good, raw material and they are using this kind of classic Magdalenian way of napping. So it doesn't okay. seem like this knowledge was lost. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's kind of interesting. But yeah, so that's that's yeah. kind of a very, very long answer to the question. No, no, it was really interesting. Well, I think this is nice because it shows indeed how, you know, just looking at something as allegedly simple as a flint blade can already show stuff like people moving around in the past and how people were learning new things and how people were transmitting knowledge to next generation. So I think that it's, uh, it's nice to go into more detail about this uh, kind of thing with, with something like this technology, but I'm curious. So, I mean, flints, we know that they were around for a long time. If they kind of, the, the flint blades, I mean, if the sort of earliest examples of them come from these African sites. So, so long ago, 500,000 years ago, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Wow. I mean, when were they used up until? I mean, they sound like a great tool. Are people still using them? <laughs> or sort of when do they start falling out of fashion, shall we say? Right. I don't think they ever went out of fashion. What did happen is there were different ways of different snapping styles that sort of developed. So, mm. for example, in the Mesolithic, you'll get more uh, indirect percussion which they would use, like they, they would take the piece of flint and they would use like a 
an antler sign, like a bit of antler to place it where they want to strike it. And then they would strike that instead of ah, almost like the... a chisel kind of thing rather than. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they would okay. use like a kind of like a chisel and sort of strike the, uh, the core indirectly. Oh, uh, okay. So you could, so you could control more precisely where you want the force sort of to enter the, uh, the flint chunk. Uh-huh. Um, so that's indirect napping, and then you have uh, pressure flaking, which you already talked a little bit about. But you can also use pressure flaking in a very weird way uh, <laughs> to create very small blades. <laughs> okay. And this is uh, where you would put like a, a piece of a very small core. You would put it in like um, a vise, and you sort of use a very long stick and put the pressure of your upper body onto it. I've seen of, someone yeah, do yeah. this and yeah. it's incredible. Like, I yeah, don't yeah. understand how you can take such a small piece of flint and like a long stick. I mean, it's like, right. I don't know, it's like threading a needle from a meter away using a, a like a long straight bit of thin wire or something. Like to me, that's how it seems. Like it's so... Yeah. You have to, oh, yeah, that, I was amazed when I saw that. <laughs> it is quite amazing how, how they uh, do that. And I, uh, that's the Mesolithic. And uh-huh. still in the Neolithic, of course, they were using flint blades as well. And I think even up until the uh, Bronze Age, right? Yeah. And so it's basically uh, of metal, course, I now, yeah, even, even in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age in the Netherlands, they were still using flints sometimes. Yeah, right? nice. But, but nice. what's more, Popular in these later periods, at least in in Northwest Europe, is this this pressure flaking mm-hmm. that we talked about earlier. So they make these these very elaborate daggers and flints, mm. flint arrowheads by just pressure flaking all all over the surface of the of the object. Right. So. Yeah. Which one of the theories around that is that it was to sort of show off how good you were at flint working, right? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be a functional object. It was just a, oh, look how gorgeous this flint object is that I've made. This is something you see in every uh, period. I think there's some some very interesting examples of that. So there's this one example of a hand axe where they sort of flaked it in such a way that this fossilized uh, piece of uh, shell is uh-huh. just in the center of the hand axe. <gasps> Right, cool. so that's something from a Neanderthal site, I think, uh, and um, I think in the Upper Paleolithic in France, they were doing these very unnecessarily long blades. So they yeah. were making flint blades that were up to fifty centimeters long or something. Wow! <laughs> and that's that not functional at all. It was no. just to sort of show off. Be <laughs> like, look at me! I can do this without breaking it. Yeah. Of, of course, like, it's functional in the imagine... sense that you can break them up. <laughs> yeah, still, yeah, yeah. Make yeah. it some mini mini blades. Well, because yeah. I think it's Mitchell and Webb, which are a British like comedy duo, did this whole. Right comedy thing about like the bronze age has arrived now and it's like what do you do it's like i'm a flint mapper oh sorry we don't need mappers <laughs> in the bronze age what else can you do it's like i don't know <laughs> obviously exactly. it didn't happen that quickly but like it is funny to think of all these neolithic flint mappers and it's the bronze age and they're like but look i can make a pretty dagger <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that sketch that's, that's uh, incredible <laughs> that's such a good one have you seen <laughs> and the other one is is like um oh does bronze still need tying to sticks yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah yeah of course <laughs> great 
there's also what is it uh, there's an Ardman animations film that came out a few years ago called early man or something i think and it's sort of similar it's like they they have a stone age tribe and then the bronze age has arrived and you've got like the evil bronze age people moving in and trying to <laughs> cut down their woods and it's very funny but, uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> well they got that part right the bronze age people were evil <laughs> <laughs> uh, i better stop recording now <laughs> <laughs> So we did already introduce you and sort of your background in archaeology in the first section of this episode, and we heard a lot about your uh, thesis and the research you've done now. But maybe uh, we can go into a little detail about sort of your own personal experience with this technology and, and flint blades in general, because we've talked a lot about how you looked a lot at like the, the different napping techniques and the methods and all of that kind of stuff. So were you like already experienced in napping before you started your own research? Like how was your approach in that respect? No, unfortunately, I was very inexperienced mm. with napping. And I I did do a little bit of napping in one of the courses that was offered during the bachelor. Mm-hmm. And my thesis supervisor does a bit of napping. So he showed me in preparation for my thesis, he showed me like the different types of napping blades and uh, so I had his materials to sort of practice refitting with with as Mm. well so that was very nice and I did sort of see him work and I read a lot about napping so I thought okay I'll I kind of understand uh, what's uh, happening in the napping process right Mm. but having learned uh, to nap a little bit better since then Mm -hmm. yeah that sort of really developed my thinking about um do you go back to your plans. thesis and go, oh man, <laughs> if I'd known then what I knew now? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily, but I think with with the uh, experience of napping, I would have come to conclusions a lot quicker, probably. Mm, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting, though, because I mean, I think a lot of people assume that in order to research the technology, you do need to be really experienced, like academically, I mean, uh, from an archaeological perspective, you need to already be very experienced in it. And I mean, I, I work a lot with the Experimental Archaeology Society, and there's so many people who are already, for example, they've been tanning skin since they were five years old, or they've been, you know, oh, wow. working with wood since this age, and they just sort of automatically fall into that. But then you have the other side, which are people who maybe aren't very, I mean, they might be crafty, but not particularly prehistoric technology crafty if that makes sense or or this type of thing or have have that understanding but still want to look at it i mean what are your thoughts on kind of that then coming having come from i guess a little bit that side of things what would your kind of suggestions or advice be for that or you know what are your thoughts on that side of things i think it really really helps if you have some Mm -hmm. experience with at least you know trying to to do the thing you are trying to study yeah technology yeah just just trying for a couple of afternoons will already give you such a better sense of like what's possible with this material, what makes sense with mm. a certain material. An example of how I sort of developed my thinking in uh, napping flint is that when I was writing my thesis, I was doing this, you know, with mostly a theoretical background. And I was thinking of every piece of flint as a, an individual action. As like a conscious, a reflection of a conscious action. So okay. each flint is like strike, which someone thinks about, right? Right. But in the process of napping, it's much more like muscle memory, much mm. more uh, sort of unconscious 
kind of already knowing where you want to go, what you need to do, it's not very, very conscious at all, right? It's just sort of, yeah. You just know. <laughs> well, you don't necessarily know. You, you just do, kind of. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah not yeah. every, <laughs> not everything that's that snapped. Not every blade or every flake is like a, a result of a conscious action. Sometimes even one strike will create like a bunch of material at the same time, oh. which you didn't think of, <laughs> especially if you're inexperienced. <laughs> yeah, 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 which could be, yeah. you know, a pleasant surprise or a really annoying one. <laughs> yeah. And what what's a very interesting, because since like last year or something, I've gathered some flint from Germany and I've learned a little bit of napping from a teacher and I've been using the napping product as well, you know, like using the flakes and blades mm. to sort of work antler. And that has really made me realize some things about stone tools that I didn't really think about before, right? Because if you just use, just take a piece of flint and you want to cut something with it, mm. you definitely don't want a sharp edge cutting into your own skin. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah makes a lot of sense so yeah. what you would do then is kind of make that part of the blade blunt mm. so and that will create a certain shape which we would identify as like a type in archaeology right so mm. so i think a lot of these types that we find that we define in archaeology are very much just a product of their use uh, yeah. which I mean, that's not something new or, or anything, but there was this kind of recent, yeah, it was, it just came out like last month, right? This, this paper about back blades. Oh, by, oh uh, yeah. 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 yeah by Justin Pargeter, Pargeter. I don't know how to pronounce his last Pargeter, name. Pargeter probably. Yeah. Pargeter. Uh, that's what I would say, and, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Justin Pargeter and colleagues. Uh, 2022 in Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. Mm -hmm. And they found through experimental studies that back blades, which were often assumed to be uh, hafted, that, that the sort of the blunted bit of the blade was made it better to haft it into like a an arrowhead, uh, mm. sorry, into like an arrow shaft. Okay, so and, they, and they then found it's almost that, like a long blade along the side kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like a barb or... Yeah. Yeah, something like that. But uh, they found that 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 actually makes it a lot more difficult to haft it, hmm. having this back bit. So and makes, yeah, having a sense. yeah <laughs> and having a backed blade, having this this blunted bit at the end, and yeah. will make it a lot more easy to sort of use it with your bare hands. Yes, and a cut with it. So I think, yeah, I think uh, experimental archaeology in combination with use wear analysis will really make our understanding of of material culture a lot better hopefully in the let's hope so because that's what i've yeah. decided to specialize in exactly yeah <laughs> so, let's hope the funding agencies agree <laughs> yeah no and i think that's really interesting also that you mentioned that indeed there's a lot of i guess tool types or you know categories and typological categories that have sort of been created over the years of archaeological research that actually could have just been people having a flake that came off a flint nodule and they were like oh but I don't want to cut my finger you know like it's there's so many 
yeah. parts of archaeology that have been so kind of official. And I mean, we've talked, I guess, a little bit about that today as well, right? About the yeah. definitions you use and the typological categories and the terminology and everything. And sometimes I do wonder whether it would be a good idea to just get rid of all that and just look at it in terms of, right, this this is an, an item, you know, <laughs> like this is an object. What could it have been used for? Why could it have been made? And maybe we would actually get very different perspectives on it because of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And, and also just seeing the object as like a combination of things that were done to it to make yeah. it useful. So the way it was hafted, for example, if it was sort of retouched to to use it for hafting or, and the bit that's used for, you know, like cutting or using it as a chisel or something, these kind of elements can also change independently yeah. from each other, right? So yeah. they might still be the same object, but they change the way it was backed or something, mm. you know? Like, so these, these kind of things, different elements can change over time on like the same tool. Yeah. Uh, well, and even the opposite of that, that certain elements that you assume are like, oh yeah, but of course it was like this because of this. And then when you try and use it, you think, huh, actually that doesn't make any sense. Like why on earth? I, I don't know. I'm doing all of my research on needles at the moment. And yeah. there's some things about these bone needles and it's always just been said like, yeah, cool. They were needles and they were probably using them in this way, similar to how we see in the ethnographic study, you know, analogies that, that we have mm. and all of this kind of thing. But actually, if you try and use it in that way, <laughs> it doesn't work. And, you know, I'm, I, it didn't work for me, but it also didn't work for like the experienced uh, people. For, so I'm working with Paleo Inuit needles yeah. for people who don't understand, uh, don't know already. I think I've mentioned it already in this podcast, but I'm not sure. And I was working this summer with Inuit seamstresses who are very experienced and who maybe haven't used bone needles themselves, but their mothers did. And, and they're the same technique they're using. And yeah, we basically found that there's a lot of assumptions that have been made about these needles that don't really make sense when you try to actually use them yourself. So I think, yeah, I mean, I'm a big advocate of experimental archaeology, but I think that it does. It gives so much more insight into the materials you're using than a purely kind of theoretical understanding of it. Yeah, exactly. And these kind of ideas of how a certain type of tool was used, mm. they usually are just uh, copied and paste it uh, throughout the literature right someone says yeah. like oh this is this is a buren and it was used to sort of you know like work bone in this yeah. kind of way that's usually an assumption from the 1950s or something yeah. that has just been sort of repeated <laughs> ever since someone made in yeah, a paper because yeah. they needed an extra hundred words and like <laughs> now it's verbatim yeah. like <laughs> and people will say like oh yeah this guy said it was uh, used for this and yeah so yeah. And then, you know, it starts to live its own life. But if you actually will start to try things, you might come to very different com conclusions or if you do use wear. So there's this other example from the Hamburgian where they have this kind of Buren, which is called a Buren or Zinken in German. Uh, and it's, probably. you know, like it's retouched <laughs> in a certain way on the end. And use wear studies actually showed that this end wasn't used to work uh, bone or antler at all. It was just used to uh, haft that mm. bit of the blade. So it was actually just a hafted blade, probably. Yeah. Uh, but if you would just look <laughs> at it from a purely typological perspective, then you would yeah. say it was a burin. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. 
Yeah. So this is basically my thesis. <laughs> if you want a summary of my thesis, this is this is it, basically. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of assumptions, but if we use microwave analysis and experimental archaeology, actually, we yeah, see you'll, it. You'll a lot of them all of the assumptions. Yeah, <laughs> which I think okay. is important to do, though. I don't know. I feel like archaeology is very. I think that it has. It, there are cha- obviously there are changes that are being made, and it is constantly in a bit of a state of development, but. I think that a lot of things seem to be still very much stuck in assumptions that, like you say, were made in, you know, the early 1900s. And it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, but, you know, this is a theory that we use or like this is the, I don't know, I'm I'm trying to think of theoretical examples now, but I can't think of any. But there's sort of all these theories or ways of looking at material and all this kind of stuff. And it's sort of assumed, oh, yes, but you have to use one of these theories or one of these approaches because that's how we've always done it. And then it's like, well, but maybe there's actually a lot more that we can say if we look with a lot fresher perspective. Yeah, yeah. In a way, this is its, its own like um, entrenched community of practice, right? I could right, yeah. <laughs> this is the problem. This is the way you do theoretical things. Approach. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's skewing all the theoretical approaches. <laughs> that is the new theoretical approach. <laughs> I don't know. I think that this is something that uh, also a lot of people, we, we were talking at the very beginning about the kind of assumptions of what archaeology is and, you know, how our our idea of what archaeology is has changed since we started potentially doing archaeology. And this was also a big thing for me was that there's so many, yeah, all the terminology that we've used today, you know, there's kind of so many classificatory terms that need to be used, which makes sense because it's such an international discipline. And, you know, if everyone used a different term for something, then no one would have a clue what anyone was talking about. So at some point you have to have these theoretical terms. And I understand that, but uh, that was one thing that really struck me when I started doing it at a, at a further level of research. So we say, so when I got into my master's and when I was reading a lot more papers and all of that kind of thing, that really uh, got to me, but uh, yeah, which, and, and yeah, I, I guess, I don't know if you've had a similar experience. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah. it's all, all one of those things and your, so by the way, for those who are listening, so Pierre and I actually work at the same university. Um, this is how I managed to corner him in the cafeteria one day and say, Hey, you know about Flint blades, right? <laughs> Do you want to come on my podcast and talk about them? Um, and we're both currently conducting our PhD research, although your PhD research is on, is not on flint blades, right? No, no, not at all. I don't have any material that I look at uh, myself. So that's kind of uh, a bummer for me. Oh, no. <laughs> Although maybe the no, next one. My, right? my PhD is on, uh, it's kind of like a, a big data approach to uh, to the late Paleolithic and Mesolithic. So I'm still focused on the period that I was interested in, but I'm mm. sort of gathering legacy data of like, okay. all of these different sites and sort of bringing that together. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Which I always find quite interesting. And like people, I, I, a, a couple of people I was talking to recently who are sort of still, they're basically trying to work out what to do for their undergraduates or their bachelor thesis. I was saying yeah. like, oh, but you know, I don't know if I want to go in this direction. And I basically said to them, don't worry, like you can change relatively easily, actually in archaeology, I find as long as you have something that's linked to the topic, you know, or you have some experience in some sort of related concept be it theoretical or the material or the method or like you say the time period and the culture you know you can actually change quite a lot like you know you said your phd is now in a very different area of study 
And I think a lot of people worry about that. So about sort of changing topics during their academic career or that they might be interested in something else. But uh, yeah. So do you find, I mean, you said, do you, you find it a shame that you're not working with Flint? But I mean, how, how do you find the experience otherwise? Yeah, no, it's been good. I think it's not a problem at all to switch topics, even yeah. to switch radically to something like a different period and a different method. Yeah. Uh, as long as you sort of, uh, you know, like find the right literature and sort of do your reading and do your courses and you'll, you'll, you'll get there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for me, for example, I got into this kind of data science-y kind of PhD, which, yeah, it, it required me to sort of learn programming <laughs> in R, uh. <laughs> which... <laughs> Yeah, well, which which has been a lot of fun for me. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been fun and it's been frustrating at uh, at times, but yeah, it's it's been fun, and I think people would probably worry if they would go into something like this that they would have to already know how to do that. But yeah. I think when you do a PhD, developing those kind of skills are also very much part of. The process yeah. yeah which yeah i think is good to know i mean like experimental archaeology right you know it's it's it helps if you already have some knowledge and maybe you will have to develop those skills as you're doing your research in order to better understand it but <laughs> you can technically develop them at alongside <laughs> yeah in that respect which yeah i feel like doing uh, yeah we, we don't have to get too much into this but i feel like doing a phd is quite seen as quite a sort of elite things still by a lot of people and it's sort of seen as a, oh but I have to be really specialized in something in order to do a PhD or I have to be really kind of dedicated to a particular topic which I do think you do in some respects but I mean I think I, I wish before I'd started that I had kind of understood that actually like you say it's it's just a further part of your training in archaeology right it's a further part of making you a researcher or making you an yeah. archaeologist or making you whatever it is you want to be basically but uh, do you have any any anything that you wish you'd known before you started? Actually, I, I'm going to sort of counter what I said earlier. I, I, it would have been better if I already knew how to do programming. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's definitely not an issue like that I that I had to learn it during the PhD. But yeah, otherwise, I would definitely recommend people who start out to just take the time to do your reading. Yeah, because I often felt like very rushed and thinking like, oh, I have to get onto the analysis, you know, like I have to do this and do that and sort of get my data and then I would not uh, spend enough time preparing you know mm -hmm. like getting getting the ideas into my head you know like reading what other people have done and so mm -hmm. it, it I really have to sort of keep telling myself like okay take your time just yeah. read read some read some articles you know read some books yeah <laughs> think of your phd like a flint blade you have to do the preparation yeah. and you know wow. in order to create that perfect <laughs> oh Look at me go. Oh, wow. <laughs> what an analogy. That's and, great. And on that note, <laughs> I think that marks the end of our debrief today. I think I'm not going to get any better than that. No. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah, it's probably time. We have, yes, a lot of reading to do. So we should probably get back to that. But thank you very, very much, Pierre, for joining me today uh, and telling us all about your research. It was fascinating. And uh, yeah, if anyone wants to find out more about Pierre's work is your master's thesis like available to read somewhere is it uh, on the university uh page or 
No, it isn't. <laughs> Very ah. sorry to say. No, no, but I I have been sort of trying to rework it into like a publication. Ah. So, and that's that's hopefully forthcoming next year. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hopefully. So maybe hopefully. Uh, we we at some point you might see these show notes updated <laughs> with a, with a link to the lovely paper about uh, yeah. Not the yeah. Clivlandian or whatever they were called, but the Magdalenian and not the this, but yeah, I, I can't remember the terminology. I'm sorry. <laughs> the people moving around in the late Paleolithic and taking their flint blades with them, basically. Yeah. There we go. There's your title. Um, but uh, yes, if you'd like to find out more about that, then keep an eye on this page. You can also find out more about Pierre's work now. I'll, I'll post some links to uh, his uh, current uh, page and academia etc and if you want to find out about flip blade technology i'll post that paper that you mentioned as well you can check the show notes uh, on the podcast homepage so uh yeah i hope that you all enjoyed our journey today and see you next month for another episode of tea break time travel I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide-open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.